Today's scripture comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. My name is Jay Harvey. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. I'm part-time, and it's a joy to be preaching to you this morning. I'm the only part-time pastor. It's something I take great pride in. Um, and um, was, as I was preparing this message, I thought that we had communion today. That's my fault. Uh, we always have communion on Good Friday, um, and, and I should have known that it was going to be moved, but I forgot. So Pastor Aaron said, make sure you preach a shorter sermon. Uh, so I prepared a shorter sermon and it's going to be shorter than it should be, perhaps. Uh, but remember, I'm part-time. Um, now, having, having said that exactly the way I said it this morning, I was told after saying that, the sermon wasn't as short as I thought it was. So, but I thought I would start again, because we get the messages, both services recorded, and we'll find out the final arbitration, uh, as the recorder will not lie. Um, need to readjust my word counts and so on. Um, but it's a joy to be with you. Uh, this afternoon now. As Pastor Gene told us, uh, Monday this week, there was another school shooting in Nashville. And this shooting took place at Covenant Presbyterian Church. When I heard about it and I heard the church, I immediately knew that this was a church in our denomination. And it, it doubly grieved me when I learned that his nine-year-old daughter, Hallie, was killed by the shooter. The last time I was a full-time pastor, I had a nine-year-old daughter in the congregation as well. And thus far, Pastor Scruggs has issued only one statement that I'm aware of about this, and he said this, through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. I don't know the Scruggs family personally, but on this Palm Sunday of our Christian faith, I thought it appropriate to honor Pastor Scruggs by repeating these words of hope and to honor the life of his little girl, because Palm Sunday is a day of the triumph of Jesus Christ over death. And I thought it appropriate for Hallie Scruggs' name to ring out over New York City as in defiance of death with the hope that she, the sure hope that she will indeed rise again. 
even as her father uh, takes hope in that now. How do we deal with death? Everyone has to answer this question eventually. One current suggestion in psychology, which has some resonances with certain Eastern, Eastern traditions, is that the way you deal with death is to focus on living in the present. That living in the present and enjoying the present is the best way to deal with death. Indeed, death should teach you to live in the present. But how can you find freedom to live in the present when the future is, in the end, so bleak if it's going to end in death for everyone? Death is something that we hope to avoid as long as possible. But in fact, it's really a guiding force behind many of our decisions if we plunge beneath the surface of our consciousness. Whether we know it or not, so many of our fears are at root a fear of death and the consequences of death. Every religion has to answer the question of what do we do with death, just as every person does. And Christianity's answer is that Jesus conquered death and that he shares his victory over us by faith in him. And Palm Sunday is a Sunday of the cry of the soul for the defeat of death. The week before Jesus was crucified, he rode into Jerusalem and he was greeted by a multitude of disciples who were rejoicing. The Gospel of John says this, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Hosanna means, Lord, save us. And this multitude of disciples gathers outside of Jerusalem to greet Jesus because they know that Jesus has raised from the dead a man named Lazarus, who had been in the tomb for four whole days. And one Bible commentator reflecting on this says this, the crowd thinks that now at last victory seemed assured. For if this Jesus was able to raise from the dead a man who had been in the tomb four days, where were the limits of his power? So they cry out, save us. That's what Hosanna means. And they have palm branches. Why palm branches? Psalm 92, 12 says, The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're greeting Jesus, crying out, Lord, save us, with hope that he is the one who is powerful to defeat death, to cause him to flourish like palm trees and grow strong like cedars. And Jesus answers their cry, but he does so in the most surprising kind of way. Jesus defeats death by dying himself. And he dies the awfulest kind of death imaginable in being crucified. He doesn't only defeat death on the surface, but he actually defeats the source and cause of death, which is sin. Jesus' death is particularly powerful because he didn't just die. He died bearing the judgment of God for the sins of the world, which is at root the cause of all death that we experience. It is sin that is a transmitter of death. If you can defeat the power of sin, then death has no hold over you. And that's the difference 
between the death of Jesus and other heroes. Have you ever secretly thought to yourself, I mean, I think it's great that Jesus died, but I might die for my mom or a friend of mine. Or what about people who died to save other people? We love our heroes and we're grateful for them. But there's a big difference because only Jesus has died to bear the judgment of God for the sins of the whole world. The horror of Jesus' death wasn't just physical. It was spiritual in bearing that judgment. And in bearing that judgment, he defeated death. So now it has no hold on you and me. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he entrusted this message of his defeat of death to his church. This message about how Jesus is the life of the church and the hope of the world. And Christians place the preaching and teaching of the Bible at the center of the life of the church for this reason. If we don't hear this message about Jesus' defeat of death, we won't discover Jesus as the one who defeats death for us. If we're not nourished by this message, we won't grow in courage and joy as those who have defeated death in Jesus. And if we don't share this message, we have no hope to offer the world. This is the work of the church. And the church is the body that is gathered in this freedom and defeat of death, this joy. And it becomes what one commentator, one theologian, John Stott, says is a new society. A society of joy, of freedom, of community, nurtured by this message that Jesus has defeated death for us and for the world. And the hope of this message took powerful root and transformed the first Christians in Jerusalem. This freedom from death in Jesus brought them together and led them to care much more deeply about one another. They started to share everything that they had so that no one in the church would be without. And this is interesting because it says true freedom from death, true freedom, period, results in greater generosity, not indulgence. Now, the church at this point is all Jewish, but there are two groups of Jews. There are those who speak Greek and those who speak the Semitic language. The text refers to them as Hebrews. Whether they were speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, we're not quite sure, but they weren't speaking Greek. Um, the, the, the ones who speak in Greek are called the Hellenist in this passage. So you have the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And the dominant group was the Hebrew group. This is, after all, Jerusalem. And the relational networks were all flowing in that direction. And what happens is, there's a natural drift that happens with the sharing of all things in common. Because the relational networks are just flowing in one direction. Many of us have been in a setting where um, a lot of people went to the same college or work in the same industry or have other, some kind of other common tie. And you know when that happens, the default thing is just for things to drift in that direction. Those are the relationships where the conversation is going to flow. Those are where the opportunities are going to flow, unless you intentionally try to do something different. We read about it like this. The text says, In those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. 
because their widows were being neglected or overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, we need to see how subtle this is. This is not racial strife. These are people of the same race. This is not class strife. Many of these people are perhaps from the same class. It's much more subtle. This is the subtle drift of care that happens due to embedded relational networks. Our natural tendency will be to care for those people in our own social groove. So therefore, you have to pay special attention to care for people outside of that lane. In this case, language is the barrier. But think about us as a society, a place of freedom and joy, new life in Christ, as exilic church. We're a church large enough to have within us different relational networks. It's possible that we could overlook care from, for one another just because we're such a group seeing the same people or talking about the same things. Well, this neglect among the first Christians and Greeks, um, this, this neglect among the, the Greek-speaking Jews causes them to tell the apostles, the 12. These are the original that Jesus appointed to walk with him. And they take this complaint very seriously. They gather the church together, and they say, pick seven men full of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, to pay special attention to the distribution of food in the church. Now notice that the disciples say the church must choose these leaders for themselves based on their reputation so they can be trusted. That makes sense, right? If you're going to entrust care to someone, they have to have a good reputation. But notice also that these men are full of the spirit of wisdom that is empowered by the presence of God in their lives to move beyond the default mode to see the needs of people around them and not just be guided by what comes naturally. So the church chooses these seven men, and we have their names. Uh, they're all Greek names, which shows the wisdom of the church, right? Because it was the Greeks who were being overlooked, and they actually changed the structure of the church to care for those who were being neglected. This is the beginning of what we call the office of deacon in the church. We're in a season in exilic right now where we're actually training the deacons that you nominated. It's people full of good, uh, full of the spirit and wisdom, people of good repute to care for the church. People called to pay special attention to the needs of the flock, whether it be food, shelter, social, personal, whatever those needs may be. But notice that the disciples are very strong in stating that they cannot do this work themselves. The 12 are. They say in Acts 6-2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, the first time I heard this, it sounded a bit privileged to me, um, like they're too good for this kind of work. <laughs> That's how I heard it. I mean, I didn't like picking up the table either. When I was growing up, when my mother said, go do the dishes or take that out of the table. Okay, okay, I do it. But, you know, it's not something I'm eager to do necessarily. But I don't think that's the case. It's not just that the disciples are elitist. These disciples will ultimately be killed and were being actively persecuted in this time because they were preaching the word about Jesus so this choice to keep preaching the word is not the choice 
of privilege comfort in this case. They say it's not right to give up preaching the word. But the word here, translated not right, is not a word that's associated with justice. It's not a word of this is right, that is wrong. It is rather a word associated with desire. Jesus uses this same word once when he speaks about his relationship to his Father in heaven. In John 8, 29, Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do things that are pleasing to him. Pleasing to him. Desiring. In 1 John 3, 22, John uses this word to describe Christians' relationship to God. We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The New King James Version of Acts 6-2 reads like this, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. This is a word associated with desire. So when the disciples say this, are they whining? Are they just stating personal preference? Are they professors who want to teach at the university but are not interested in serving in the dining hall? That's kind of how I thought of it initially, the first time I read this passage. Well, this requires more study and investigation, but I think it's likely when the disciples say that it's not desirable they stop preaching and to wait on tables, they could be referring not to their own desires, but actually to the desires of Jesus himself. It's not exactly clear in the text. And there's a principle of biblical interpretation that when something is not attributed like this, God becomes a potential referent. Could well be. We know it indeed is not desirable from Jesus that they stop preaching. We know that for sure. Why? Jesus has entrusted this message to the church. He told the disciples to preach and to teach that he would be with them. But he tells them that not because he doesn't care about widows. I mean, Jesus' brother says in James 127, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Oh, God cares about widows, quite the opposite. He said, you don't even have a true religion if you neglect this type of care. It's not about caring. Now, the reason that it's not pleasing to Jesus to stop preaching this message of his defeat of death is because if that message stops, we cut the life off from the church. If that message of Jesus is the one who defeats, death stops. We're no longer the hope for the world. If we stop preaching, we cut off ourselves from Jesus himself and the freedom and joy he gives to us. And there'll ultimately be no power or joy to care for anyone in a, in a significant way in the church. So Jesus doesn't desire that the preaching stops, but he does desire that the care move forward, that this complaint be healed. And it is. This strategy that's developed to care for the Greek-speaking widows leads to this. In Acts 6-7, it says, The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It was effective. And note here how it says the priests became obedient to the faith. Why is that significant? 
Well, these priests, this is in Jerusalem, these priests, most scholars think, would have been responsible ultimately to help care for these neglected Hellenistic Jewish widows. And these great works of care from this new group of Christians, the priests get word of that. They know how hard it is to care for people like that. And it testifies to them of this life-giving power of Jesus who's defeated death for his people and for the world. The caring life of the church bears witness to the power of Jesus to defeat death in our lives. You know, in between the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after being in the grave for four days and the time when Jesus himself goes to the cross in Jerusalem to die and bear the judgment of God for your sins and mine. In between that time, Jesus actually shared a meal with Lazarus. Can you imagine what it would be like to be sharing a meal with someone who raised you from the dead? Well, on Friday, our church is going to gather again. And it's a wonderful thing that we have pushed off our regular observance of communion and are going to have it on Friday instead of today. Because Friday is called Good Friday because we're remembering on this day, Jesus himself died for us. It's on this day that he defeated death. And he invites us to a meal, the Lord's Supper meal, where we see his body and his blood. And he wants us to behold him, and he wants us to commune with him, and he will be there with us, not in theory, not as a mental image, but really and truly through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, his person and presence will be with us as we share in that meal with him. I don't know how you're experiencing the grip of death on our world today, what struggles you're facing, what anxiety you feel, what fears are propelling you. Or maybe you're on the opposite extreme. Maybe you've been successful in avoiding thinking about death for now. But that will change. Wherever you are, Jesus invites you to look upon him, to draw near to him, to see in his death for you that he loves you, and he offers that defeat of death and freedom and joy, and a life forever with him and his people. Jesus is the only, only one in the world more powerful than death itself, and you can trust him. Amen.